Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government are we ready? I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. A troubling pattern of democratic backsliding and authoritarian consolidation has emerged across the Western Hemisphere. Almost invariably, these trends have been accompanied by attacks on the press and a narrowing space for independent media. Journalists throughout the region must contend with not only rising disinformation, misinformation, and a more polarized political environment, but also threats to their own physical safety as the hemisphere continues to rank as one of the deadliest regions for journalist protections. To fortify the free and independent press throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, the Organization of American States recently announced the establishment of the Center for Media Integrity of the Americas, a hub for best practices and support for journalists throughout the region. This week, we are joined by Ambassador John Feely, former U.S. Ambassador to Panama and the inaugural Executive Director of the Center for Media Integrity of the Americas. Ambassador Feely joins us to discuss the challenges in the media landscape today, as well as how the center is working to address these in its work. In this episode, we will take a regional snapshot of the media landscape and its challenges before diving into some country case studies and policy options for regional governments, civil society, and the international community. Thank you for joining us today, Ambassador Feely. It's a real pleasure, Ryan. The Center for Media Integrity of the Americas was inaugurated by the OAS this June in response to the shared challenges faced by the free press throughout the hemisphere. Ambassador, could you share with us a brief overview of the center's work from June up until today? What have been your main priorities in getting this center up and running? The main priorities have been the organization of our core functions. So as some of our listeners might know, but others might not, let me be clear about what the center is. The center is a minimally staffed hub that is currently a project of the Secretary General of the OAS. Secretary General is Luis Almagro. We have begun with initial funding from the OAS, from its Support for Democracy Secretariat. But the center is, at the same time, in the process of transitioning to being a fully independent 501c3, that is a not-for-profit organization. When we get our 501c3 designation, from the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, and that will take a matter of months, given the bureaucracy in the IRS. We intend to, as an independent center, to structure a uh, memorandum of understanding to continue to work with the OAS closely in support of its goals of strengthening democracy in the hemisphere. And one of the ways that you strengthen democracy is by strengthening free press, and by vouching safe the inherent right of all people who live in democratic societies to have freedom of expression. We have that here in the United States in our constitution. Most constitutions throughout the region have it as well. But as you mentioned in your intro, we've seen really, really worrisome democratic backsliding in the region over the last decade. So the main structure of the center, as I said, is this minimally staffed hub. And what we're going to do is we're going to start, this is a small project. I want to be very clear. We're not starting with huge amounts of money. We have the seed capital from the OAS. Going forward, we will only accept donations from private 
foundations, uh, individuals, and, and businesses. One of the conditions of accepting a donation is that there will be no editorial control over what we say. And that stands for the OAS today. The core functions of the center will be as follows. The first is recurring journalism training. Now, training is actually not really the right word. It'll be a, an intensive one-week seminar. We have structured a partnership with the University of Maryland, the Philip Merrill College of Journalism. They will conduct a one-week seminar for somewhere between, depending upon how much money I raise, 10 and 15 journalists, working journalists from Latin America and the Caribbean. And the seminar is going to be a one-week intensive program that reviews best practices, but then also delves into a much more personalized and tailored presentation of the skills and skill sets that working journalists, investigative journalists need. We're talking about things like the manipulation of data, how to use big data. We've all read about massive leaks. We've all read about access to data. A lot of folks, you know, can get the thumb drive and get the digital bits on their computer, but they don't necessarily know what they're looking at. That takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of practice. The International Consortium for Investigative Journalism, uh, the folks who brought you the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, etc. That's sort of the world standard of this. And we would like to help Latin American journalists do this on their own. That's just one aspect. There are many other aspects of how to conduct an ethical, fact-based, investigative journalistic enterprise, and we want to be able to do that. One of the other benefits of bringing people together in person here in Washington uh, under the aegis of the University of Maryland is the networking. You know, a lot of times, Ryan, when journalists are out there and they're working in places like Mexico, where 17 journalists have been killed this year alone, when they're working in places like Guatemala or in Colombia, they can feel very alone. So, what we've done is, and since June, one of the things I've done uh, has been to assemble a group of 30 renowned journalists from across the hemisphere, Pulitzer Prize winners, Peabody Award winners, National Press Club winners, uh, folks who are, we have the number one podcaster from Colombia, Maria Jimenez Usan, uh, a real all-star cast of veteran investigative journalists. And they're all working pro bono. They're all dedicating their time to give back, basically, and to mentor the next generation of folks who will continue to do that extremely important journalistic labor that is an essential support for a healthy democracy. That's the seminar. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to try to incentivize those journalists. And the way we're going to do that is by running good old-fashioned competition, a call for proposals that... 30-person board of advisors, those journalists, will take a look at the proposals and select some winners. The goal, frankly, we haven't done this yet, but the goal is to be able to provide four or five awards of somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000. If you get that amount of money in Latin America as a working journalist, that should give you around six months in most countries to be able to take a sabbatical. If you're a freelancer, obviously, it puts food on the table and you can focus on the investigation that really motivates you. One of the things to keep in mind is that all of our the participants in our seminars and the people who win these awards will have access to those 30-odd journalists to be able to mentor them in their work. They'll also be able to 
have connections to the people if they were in the seminar to folks who may be in other countries and working on similar things. And so we hope to be able to incentivize and incubate collaboration. And the final core function will be hosting conferences. We did our first one on September 19th. We held it at the OAS. It was called Exiled, Not Silence, Journalism Under Siege. And we brought together four well-established journalists from the region who very sadly cannot work at home. They are exiled from their, their home country. We had Carlos Fernando Chamorro from a very famous journalistic dynasty in Nicaragua. Half of his family is in jail and the other half is on the run from the Ortega region. We had a fellow by the name of Boris Munoz, who was the Spanish language editor of the New York Times editorial page for six years, very well-known journalist. He can't go back to Venezuela because of the criticism that he has published of the Maduro regime. And another woman named Luzmeli Reyes, she runs something called Efecto Cocuyo, the firefly effect, to shed light on what's going on in Venezuela. And we had a very, very brave, young Cuban woman who writes for something called Periodismo del Barrio, journalism from the neighborhood. And she had written something that so upset the Cuban authorities that one day she had two agents show up outside her house and tell her she had an hour to pack her bags and leave. So we pulled them together. We got the rapporteur for freedom of expression at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, a fellow by the name of Dr. Pedro Vaca, who's a close collaborator, a member of that board of advisors that I mentioned. And we held a conversation about what it's like to practice journalism when you are on the run, when you are exiled, when because of government pressure, because of criminal uh, organized crime pressure, you are unable to live and work and practice journalism in your home country. We're looking forward to doing a lot more of these in 2023. And so those are the three core functions. That's what I've been working on since June. And very happily, I will say, this is a space where people are enormously collaborative. There are a lot of organizations that train journalists, that support journalists. But the simple fact is we need more and we need more focus on this crisis in journalism in Latin America and the Caribbean. And for that, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you today. Latin America has a rich media ecosystem marked by longstanding and highly regarded news outlets, as you mentioned, one, Carlos Fernando Chamorro and Confidencial, as well as some new and innovative journalistic initiatives. Now, let's talk about some of the shared challenges and opportunities that the region faces. One of the most significant developments globally and in the Americas has been the rise of disinformation and misinformation facilitated by social media and sometimes promoted by governments themselves. How have these challenges evolved in recent years, especially in light of the ongoing COVID pandemic? Yeah, that's absolutely what, that was one of the trends or one of the tendencies that led me to start thinking about starting a center like this. Disinformation is a phenomenon that affects all nations, all regions. It's not unique to Latin America. We have it here in the United States. And it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that just as we have polarized politics in the United States and the levels of trust in media have dropped significantly from, say, half a century ago, the same phenomenon has occurred in Latin America. So one of the big challenges that any journalistic outlet, whether it's a, an established media, uh, 
an old school newspaper that maybe now has transitioned to being an online digital portal or television or radio. One of the things they have to combat daily is precisely this issue of disinformation, bad information put out purposely by interested parties. They can be governments, they can be corporations. In many cases in Latin America, they are foreign governments, and very specifically, they are the Russian government and the Chinese government. And I don't shy away from saying it. They've got to be able to sift through, realize what's true, what is beyond spin, what is absolutely false. And you put your finger on one of the worst issues for abuse, and that was the COVID pandemic. Some of the things that popped up on Facebook in the region. You take a look, take a look at the region. The region has 8% of the world's population, had well over 20% of the world's COVID deaths. When President Trump was telling people about drinking bleach, those sorts of, you know, or disinfectants to be able to clean out uh, the COVID virus from one system or some of the, you know, experimental drugs, those messages were repeated all throughout Latin America. And very tragically, a lot of people died. So how do you fight disinformation? My feeling is that the only way to fight disinformation is with good information. You know, the old line about you don't beat something with nothing. So in a way, the Center for Media Integrity of the Americas is about dealing with a hyper-modern media ecosystem by going back to basics. One of the reasons why the word integrity is in the title of our center is because I find that, and many of my colleagues, and certainly all of those stellar investigative journalists on the board of advisors, believe that integrity and journalistic ethics have to be at the core of what current and future journalists do to fight this information. And the way you do it, publish it by investigating and publishing fact-based stories. The physical security of journalists is also a persistent challenge throughout the hemisphere, where 139 journalists have been murdered over the past decade, according to Reporters Without Borders. And you mentioned just 17 already this year in Mexico. Why has security been such a constant obstacle, and how is the center looking at the physical safety of journalists? Yeah, it's a great question. And we have to be very clear. The center is just starting. We are not going to be all things to all people. And one of the things we discussed but realized we would not be able to do is to provide actual support for physical protection. There are groups that do that, phenomenal groups out there. Freedom House does that. The Committee to Protect Journalists, CPJ, does that. A number of private organizations do that. It's not that They've got it covered so we don't have to do it. The need is there. It's just that as we're starting up and raising money and things like that, we don't have, frankly, the staff to be able to do the logistical work involved in protecting journalists. That said, we can contribute and we intend to contribute. You asked the question, why is their physical security so often at risk? And very simply, it has to do with the degradation of the rule of law in those countries where they are killed. Law and order and genuine good police work suffers when you have a weakening of democracy. Why is that? The reason is very simple. Authoritarian governments tend to turn police forces and security forces into their own Praetorian guards. They politicize them. They use them 
for their own purposes. And page two of the wannabe dictator's playbook is silence the press. In many cases, as they're silencing the press, they're creating their own press. They set up digital online portals. They take over news programs and television stations, radio. Don't ever forget radio in the United States. You know, I think I'm probably the only guy who still tunes into an FM radio. But all over Latin America, AM radio and FM radio is enormously important as a medium of journalistic communication. And so very frequently you will see things like, for example, in Nicaragua, the Ortega regime shutting down Catholic church-owned radio stations in remote rural areas which are the sole, many times, if not the sole, one of very few sources of information. So as you see a decline in rule of law, as you see an increase in criminality, and as you see a politicization many times of the very security forces which should be protecting not only journalists but all citizens, Sadly, you see a concomitant rise in attacks on journalists. Most times, I don't want to generalize too much here, most times when you see journalists kill outright, you know, scooters riding up in the middle of the night and blasting a few rounds through a journalist's house and killing them or hitting them in a crowded plaza, um, those are criminal interests. Uh, governments tend to be no less cutthroat, but a little less deadly. They imprison them. They investigate them for taxes. They shut them down in terms of starving their media outlets with government financing. I mean, the ways to turn the Riestad up from President Lopez Obrador in his morning press conference, holding up the tax returns of a journalist who exposed his son's corruption to, you know, Sinaloa cartel hitman driving up and just shooting somebody openly in Culiacan in Mexico or, you know, that same scenario repeated in other countries, uh, that rheostat is in the hands of the interests that don't want fact-based, ethical, integrity-filled reporting. Let's zoom in and examine specific countries in the region and some of their unique media challenges. You mentioned Nicaragua. I know it's a country that's near and dear to, to both of our hearts. The Ortega Murillo regime has been dismantling the press and forcibly wresting control of it, mostly for the family's personal financial gain. Uh, it made it a major component of its dictatorial consolidation. How can we support free press in the very closed societies in the Americas, such as Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba? Yeah, in those three countries, it's incredibly difficult. One of the things we have to recognize is that when you, in those three countries, when you have leaders who have sort of crossed the red line of openly attacking their own citizens, in some cases killing their own citizens because they disagree with them politically, you really do up the ante in terms of what tools are needed be able to fight. One of the first things I would say is, frankly, what we're doing here today, information. Make it far more well-known, not just in the United States, but throughout the region, exactly what is happening to journalists and why. Who is being imprisoned? This is, you know, tried and true. There are lots of good human rights and freedom of expression groups out there 
that routinely will publish, you know, denuncias, as we say in Spanish, or, uh, you know, public condemnations of the latest attacks on journalists. That needs to be stepped up and kept up. I think if you take a look at the role of government, you will see increasingly we are getting better responses from governments. You know, historically, as you well know, Ryan, Latin governments are loath to comment on the internal domestic politics of other countries. You know, to some degrees, I will say this, you know, as a, as a retired diplomat who doesn't have to be so diplomatic anymore, a lot of that is really hypocritical. They do it when it's in their interests. They don't do it when it's not in their interests. But the basic sort of, you know, no injerencia or, you know, no interference in the domestic issues of another country stems from a self-protective mutual pact. You don't say anything about what I do to my people. I won't say anything about what you, you do to your people. And the fact is that in those three countries, they are the governments, the regimes, are just wantonly abusing the human rights of their people. So I think one is international knowledge and diffusion of that. Two is what the governments are doing. If you take a look at a lot of the statements that came out of the OAS General Assembly, and I'm the first to admit, the OAS has no enforcing power, but it does have when you get, you know, uh, a number of countries sign on to declarations that decry the attacks on journalists, that say, this is not what we as Latins and Caribbean societies should be supporting as a matter of fact, we should be condemning it. Those kinds of statements from governments, especially multilateral governments, I think can be particularly effective. Now, the fact is, we know that Daniel Ortega, Nicolás Maduro, and Miguel Díaz-Canal really don't care if, you know, the United States or if another country makes a critical statement about them. But here's what it does. It gives hope to the people who are suffering under those regimes. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard from people in all three of those countries say, could you please get, you know, when I was serving, you know, could you get Secretary Clinton, could you get Secretary Kerry to make a statement about so-and-so? That kind of lifeline is essential. And so one of the things the center will hope to do with its public-facing conferences and uh, when we have our website up and running, we're still under construction with that, but is to be able to try and get those messages out to people. So those are two, I think, exhortatory things that we can do. The other thing we can do, and the U.S. government does do this, is we can sanction those people in those governments and societies who are attacking journalists when we find out uh, it, very rarely will you ever get a genuine judicial investigation as to, you know, who was driving the scooter, who shot that investigative reporter, much less find out who was the intellectual author of that crime. But when you do, you can sanction them. We can do things like freeze any assets they may have in the United States under the Office of Foreign Asset Control. We can make sure that they don't get visas. Those sorts of things should be done. So there are a number of things we can do. Mostly, I will admit, they are in the informational arena, but to the extent we can use whatever coercive tactics that we have, and those would be government primarily, um, we should advocate for them. 
Given the extent of the obstacles facing independent media in our hemisphere, the Center for Media Integrity of the Americas has a critical role to play. But it also demands greater cooperation between a range of other international actors, as you've said already. So I want to ask you, beyond the OAS, are there any other international bodies that can facilitate the center's work? Oh, yeah, there are. And quite frankly, we have already begun to establish partnerships with them. So the three core partners of the Center for Media Integrity of the Americas are, as I mentioned, the University of Maryland, the Philip Merrill College of Journalism, uh, which is a marvelous school, and Rafael Lorente and Dana Priest, who holds the night chair there, Pulitzer Prize winner from the Post, Washington Post. They are both phenomenal collaborators, so we work with them. Uh, the Washington Post is also one of our partners. And we have some great, great collaborations planned with the Post to include possibly taking some of the journalists who come and attend our seminars and giving them internships working on the Washington Post news floor, which is a sort of an enlightened self-interest for them because that creates a stringer core for them back in the region when those journalists return home. The third partner that we have, that's called the Fundacion Gabo, the Gabriel Garcia Marquez Foundation in Bogota, Colombia, which is an amazing journalistic organization, probably the, the most well-known one in Latin America and the Caribbean, run by a very dear friend and committed journalism advocate, Jaime Abello. And, you know, it takes its name from one of the greatest journalists the hemisphere has ever known. He also happened to be a Nobel Prize winning author, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, known in Colombia as El Maestro. I was enormously privileged uh, for many years to be a close friend of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And what a lot of people know him for is 100 Years of Solitude and his work as a novelist. And I take nothing away from that. But before he did that, he was a working journalist. Clandestine in Chile. That was a very famous set of essays that he put together where he essentially sneaks into the Pinochet regime under the guise of being, I believe, a, a Uruguayan businessman, if I'm not mistaken. Gabo was nothing if not folklorico, as we say in Spanish, folkloric. But no. And, you know, he had his own trajectory. It's pretty interesting. You know, he was very close to Fidel Castro for a long time, and he had his visa taken by the United States for a very long time. But his legacy is one of journalism done with integrity, journalism done with high ethical standards and quality editing and uh, redaction. And so we're very honored and very pleased to, uh, to count on them as a partner. But there are others. You know, I could go on naming them. But the fact is there are a lot of journalism organizations that do very similar things that we do. But again, as I say, it's not that we're going to be redundant, but there's just so much work to be done. And the space is so wide and the crisis is so real. You know, let's just take a look at Mexico, since we're talking about specific countries. You know, Mexico is not Cuba. It's not Nicaragua. It's not Venezuela. But you do have a president in Mexico who is creeping along an authoritarian scale. And he openly attacks media in Mexico. And anybody who dares to criticize, anybody in media who dares to criticize the media, ends up on his regular Wednesday morning press conference. He gives a daily press conference for about an hour and a half, two hours, which is kind of getting to Del Castro lanes. But, you know, he has no problem standing up in front of the press. But if somebody asks a critical question, if somebody puts him between, as they say in Spanish, 
la espada y la pared, in between the sword and the wall, he gets up on his hind legs and he fights back. And one of the ways he fights back is to use the power of the state to go after those individual journalists. As I mentioned, in a very famous case several months ago, he literally held up the tax return of the journalist who broke the story about his son's sweetheart deal living in a luxury mansion in Houston. That is not democratic behavior. That is not something that people should be emulating. And it pains me as somebody who truly loves Mexico and spent almost seven years of his career on two different occasions working in Mexico. It pains me to see that. Ambassador Feely, I want to close by asking you, is there something that we did not cover in our conversation? Anything else you'd like to highlight or add? The only thing I would add is that one of the things the center is going to be doing, but uh, it would be disingenuous of me to tell you that I've got it figured out. But one of the things we want to do with the people who come to participate in our seminars and the board of advisors that we've assembled is to try to look a little bit closer at the issue of social media influencers. We all, to varying degrees, consume information, to put it very broadly, in a multitude of platforms, right? The internet has just atomized how we get our information. And we know from study after study that throughout the region, including in the United States, traditional media has lost out space to social media. So many Americans, get their news feed off of a Facebook account or off their Twitter account. And the issue there is to try and understand how the AI-driven, artificial intelligence-driven algorithms of those platforms polarize the information that an individual consumer receives. If I follow, just to make it very simple, uh, if I follow MSNBC and the New York Times, it is highly unlikely that the algorithm of Facebook is going to push to me Alex Jones, Infowars, or Fox News. So I'm never going to see an opposing view. And frankly, opposing views are what democracy is all about. And informed citizens, well-informed citizens, are the heart and soul of democracy. That's what democracy works for. That's who it's supposed to serve. And the citizens, I believe, have a responsibility to be well-informed and elect the representatives that they believe will best represent them. Well, that isn't happening in a lot of, uh, pretty much all over the world, frankly, as we have moved away from editorially curated news and information and towards social media provided information and news. And yet we can all sit here and cry about it, but the fact is I don't think it's going away. And so how can we at the center work with journalists who have at least a nominal code of ethics they're supposed to follow and social media influencers who, you know, are, in many cases, 21-year-old kids who have a hook that gets people to listen to their podcast, their TikTok videos, their online streaming, you know, presentations. And I don't know the answer. Um, you know, we're not going to try. I don't think the answer is to try to make every social media influencer 
a working journalist. But, you know, let's face it, a 22-year-old young person who has a TikTok account in Brazil that gets several million views, who normally fills his videos or her videos with, you know, the coolest sneakers they're wearing, the latest sports scandal, uh, etc. On the day that person decides to record a sarcastic video about one or the other of the two candidates who are going to face off here in a week in Brazil, either Lula or Jair Bolsonaro, that person has more eyeballs than most traditional newspapers. And that person, I'm not saying they're going to throw the election, but they can have an effect on it. Well, that's crossed over from just, you know, silly dancing and lip syncing, which is fine. I'm not criticizing it, but to being politically involved. And where is the, not training, but where is the consciousness raising, maybe is the best way to put it, of that individual before they film that video that says, hang on a second, before you go out and make political statements about the issues that will affect you and all other Brazilians and your followers, um, have you verified that information? Do you know what you're saying to be true? Or did you just hear it? Is it something that you found in a Reddit, you know, subgroup? How do you know that what you're putting out there is true? And, you know, we all know what hate speech is, and everybody runs away from that. This is a lot more subtle. If you are influencing people, the whole point is you have an opinion, you want to get it across, and you want people to react to your opinion. How do you do that ethically? How do you do that with integrity? The short answer is, I don't know, but it's one of the areas that we're going to look forward to exploring. Ambassador John Feely, former U.S. Ambassador to Panama and the inaugural Executive Director of the Center for Media Integrity of the Americas. Again, thanks for joining us on 35 West today. We'll let you go and monitor uh, TikTok videos, Twitter handles, and Facebook feeds. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much, Ryan. I appreciate it.